0: Okay, and I can say that as an expert now, being the parent of two teenagers, <laughs> I watched them and their friends in high school, and I feel like we're doing them a disservice in how we structured all that, because they feel like they can't be wrong, they can't make a mistake. And high school, and probably undergrad too, is so stressful for these kids, because they feel like... They cannot make a mistake, and there's no way to recover from making a mistake. We have to teach people it's okay to make mistakes, and I don't know if it takes until graduate school before they're learning that. It's harder to unlearn the other stuff. It's just, I feel like we need to teach that much, much earlier along.
1: Welcome to
2: the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific
1: creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italienai. And I am Martin Lutcher. Steve Quake is a professor of bioengineering and of applied physics at Stanford University. Recently, Steve also became head of science at the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, an organization established by Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan, who invest 99% of the wealth from their Facebook shares in it.
2: And Steve is an extremely accomplished scientist. Remarkably, he's been elected to three of the most notable academies of the United States, The National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Medicine, and the National Academy of Engineering. Steve's invented many measurement tools for biology, including new DNA sequencing technologies and also microfluidic automation. In particular, he's known for inventing new diagnostic tools, including the very first non-invasive prenatal test for Down syndrome, where instead of doing an amnio, you just do a regular blood test and sequence some of the fragments of the baby's DNA that have made it into the mother's bloodstream. And this diagnostic test alone has already probably saved thousands of lives by now. So Steve, we're really happy to have you on with us today. Thanks so much, it's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. To get started, Steve, what would you say is your general approach to science? What is your process?
0: Boy, that's a broad question, you know. It's a pretty broad question. (laughs) You know, I've sort of made my career at the boundary between disciplines, and I found that to be a very fruitful area to explore. I mean, initially it was the boundary between physics and biology. Then it became the boundary between engineering and medicine. And, you know, there's just very interesting to explore those areas where fields meet, and that's been very productive. I was fortunate where I had a mentor, Steve Chu, who really was fearless about going into new fields and not feeling constrained to keep doing what he'd always done. And he imbued his trainees, including me, with that spirit as well. So I've also moved around to many fields through the course of my career. When you say fearless, is it to just
2: believe that even though you don't have the training for it, you can somehow make it up? Or is there a strategic way to do it where you, you form collaborations and do make sure that there's a expert somehow on board?
0: Yeah, I mean, for sure, I think respects the role of experts, but also leaves room for the thought that there can be creative input from other areas and new angle on questions and a problem. I mean, as you sort of mentioned in the introduction, non-invasive prenatal testing. I had never done anything in diagnostics before that, but my background in single molecule biophysics had given me this experience about counting molecules, and that ended up being the key insight in solving that problem. People had been coming at it, the pathologists and people in the field from trying to find ways to purify the fetal DNA and separate it from the maternal somehow. And the insight was quite different than that, realizing that you could count molecules and look at overrepresentation. You didn't need to understand the difference between maternal and fetal to get to the answer. And no one in the field would have had that insight because it's not the way they thought about things. But having come from the field, single molecule biophysics, we we're counting molecules, it was like the obvious way to go. And that's an example of how bringing people from different backgrounds into a new field can lead to breakthroughs.
1: So do you think that's true more generally? Or why is it that a lot of interesting stuff is at the boundary between disciplines?
0: Yeah, I think part of it is that in a field, you tend to get blinders on at a certain point and accept received wisdom and people coming from the outside. Well, be in a position to challenge the received wisdom. And sometimes it's that change of perspective that ends up leading to a breakthrough. Sometimes it's people coming from the outside with a new measurement approach that also can lead to breakthroughs. Yeah, we say that
2: uh, a hypothesis is a liability in the sense when you're working within a field, there's the dogma of the field, the, the set of hypotheses that, that drive it. And yeah, you may not be able to see beyond it. You sort of like need like the naive people to come from the outside.
0: And it can be about redefining the problem. And one of the examples I like to use is genomics. I mean, that's feel amazingly revolutionary over the last two decades. It's completely changed our view of genetics. Yet it didn't really come out of the genetics community. You look at the folks who drove that, and I'll just say, you know, two of the very prominent figures are Eric Lander and Craig Venter, and neither of them are geneticists. Craig was coming out of pharmacology. Eric was coming out of mathematics. And so they came into this field of genetics and revolutionized it by not being of it. And I think about how did that happen? And I think it's because the geneticists were stuck thinking about a certain set of problems, had to find every mutation, and had to have perfect genomes. And Craig and Eric came in and said, no, it's not about having the perfect genome or having all the mutations. It's about getting a draft genome so you have a survey of all the genes and a lot will come Mm -hmm. out of it out of this. And eventually the Genesis figured oh yeah, that's right. But it didn't come from them internally because they were really thinking about what, was, what they thought was important in a different way. The thing though, is that when someone comes from the
2: outside, there is a sort of bias against them. They don't know perhaps some obvious details that every undergrad is trained in the field and somehow they need to get the credibility. So how do you do it? Like when you go to a, a new field, Do you have a kind of strategy for not being dismissed?
0: Well, I mean, you just have to have a high threshold for embarrassment, I guess, you know, mistakes and say, yes, okay, I'll learn about that. But here's something else that maybe you should think about. And I'll often do it through collaboration with experts as well. I mean, there's definitely that helps like. When I got into structural biology with microfluidics to do protein crystallization, that came about through a wonderful collaboration with James Berger, the structural biologist. And we taught each other, and that led to a ton of wonderful discoveries and innovations. And we went into that as partners. And that can ease some of the pain of getting in, let's put it that way.
2: (laughs) Mm. And so now you have a really big job. You're the head of all of science at the Chan Zuckerberg Institute, and I'm wondering if In your setting of the strategy, you take some of those experiences of perhaps thinking that maybe, first of all, collaborations are a good thing. And second, that maybe there's a certain logic to how collaborations should be engineered, that there should be maybe one expert and one person who's just transitioning from a totally different field into that place.
0: Yeah, that's right. And at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, we have a bunch of grant programs where, you know, specifically we're asking people to collaborate. So one of them in our neuroscience portfolio is literally called collaborative pairs. We're (laughs) asking people Mm -hmm. to come together. And it's usually people from different backgrounds, like one neuroscience, one technology person. And the point of the grant is to get them to work together and to teach each other. So I think it's interesting that when you have these grant programs
1: that foster collaborations between people, that you're not thinking about a huge uh, consortia with five or 10 or 20 PIs, but that that's you're right. more thinking about pairs of people. I think that's actually an unusual way of thinking about collaborations from a funding perspective. Would you agree?
0: Maybe. Yeah. I'm new to the funding business. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new field for you. <laughs> exactly. I've wandered another field where I'm not an expert, but it makes so much sense to me based on my lived experience as a scientist. And There's certainly a role for big efforts and large consortia and many important things in science happen because of that. For example, I first got involved with Mark and Priscilla's philanthropy as the founding co-president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, which was their first research institute. And Mm -hmm. that was meant to bring together collaboration between universities to take on a big problem. So Stanford, UCSF, Berkeley coming together to take on big challenges like making whole organism cell atlases. And we did that. And those were collaborations that involved Dozen groups from the universities and 150 authors on the paper. And so we've done things like that as well. And it's been very fruitful. And so I believe a collaboration at all levels between individuals, part of consortia, between institutions. And that theme runs through a lot of what we do at CZI. And Steve, how do you see it when a
2: group is collaborating? Let's say it's two scientists. What is the role of ego, do you think, that that needs to be overcome? I mean, there must be a way to see it as a win-win, but do you think that there are some hurdles that people need to be conscious of for, for how they collaborate to make sure that it's a true collaboration and just not a scheme for both individuals to each take their money and actually not do anything together? <laughs> and yeah. second, to work in a very synergistic way without letting the ego get in the way.
0: Yeah, it needs to be some sublimation of the ego to make any collaboration <laughs> work. And we also would not be happy if people just split money and went their separate ways. And we have right. to, to disincentivize that sort of behavior by having like a second round of grants with people who work together really well. But more generally, it's just, how do you say it? My good friend, Frances Arnold, has a great way to characterize this. She says, hmm. science is easy. People are really hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, is that also your experience?
0: Ah, yes. I mean, for sure. (laughs) Who who hasn't run into challenges in dealing with colleagues and you know whatnot? Mm. That's just part of life, and one has to figure out how to deal with it. But you know, I've been fortunate through my career. I've had many, many incredibly productive collaborations. I've stayed close both as professional colleagues, but as friends with many of my collaborators from the time I was assistant professor all the way up till now. When I started as assistant professor, I had collaborations where I co-authored with senior colleagues. Francis was one, Axel Scherer was another, and they both kind of mentored me. And you're always told us the wrong thing to do as an assistant professor, is don't collaborate and co-author, especially with people who are senior, because people won't figure out who gets the credit and you won't get promoted and da 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 mm-hmm. I ignored that and it worked out just fine for me. And part mm-hmm. of it was Axel and Francis are wonderful people. Part of it was it was clear what my contributions were and it just all worked out for me. And yeah, i continue that to this day where I've got great collaborations. with uh, Tom Sudoff and I have a wonderful collaboration right now. I'm absolutely in love with the work we're doing, thinking about the role of RNA and long-term memory, memory consolidation. And neither of us could have done that alone and together we're doing something that I'm absolutely in love with. So it seems
2: as though you've cracked the code of how to have a real collaboration. So what is the secret? Is that
0: like do you have to be particularly generous? Generosity is key in all human endeavors, not just collaboration. (laughs) I think you've touched on something very fundamental there. The world would be a better place if everyone could be a little more generous. Hmm. And that's so crucial. If you don't worry about who's gonna get the credit in the end, and it all tends to work out in the long run. Let me put it another way. I mean, it doesn't work when people take a very transactional approach. And I worry I see a lot of that, especially among young people and especially among authorship, among students and postdocs. They get very transactional about it. And that's not healthy and not good for the long run. So
1: do you think that collaborations are an important fundamental part of your creativity or are they just one of many aspects of your creative process?
0: They've been so important for a lot I've done, but they're definitely not the only thing. I mean, other things I've done in my career have been more just me and my students and postdocs. That's a different kind of collaboration. Let me put it another way. Everything I've done is collaborative because <laughs> it's yeah, right. with <laughs> my colleagues or with my students and postdocs.
2: Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that we scientists, as complex as the thing that we do is, we still boil it down into a one-dimensional author list. Right where there's a first author, maybe we could add some asterisks here and there, but one is necessarily listed first and one is necessarily listed last. And that's one way of doing it that hasn't changed for, I don't know, hundreds of years. And I wonder to what degree that actually limits science. Like if we had a different way of assigning credit Would that deconstrain people's egos and allow us to do other things?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, I have to say, I think the asterisk is like the single greatest invention in academic publishing in 100 years. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. It a lot of problems. (laughs) I agree. There's much more to do. And this is one of the privileges at CZI is that, you know, we're able to think about things like this. And we, for example, have made a major investment in preprints so we're the mm-hmm. major supporter of bioarchive and you know that's mm-hmm. changing the model of publishing in one way but i think there's more radical things one can do around authorship and things like that and we now have the kind of the resource and the ability to help stimulate that discussion and it's one of the things i'd like to see happen during my tenure someone who's thought very deeply about these questions is ron vale and there's definitely room to innovate in how we assign credit for scientific work that goes beyond a linear author list. And I'd love to see continued evolution of the field. I think it'd be very healthy. So when you say radical things about authorship, what does that mean? Well, I mean, one of the things Ron has suggested, which I think is a great idea, is linking people's contributions to particular figures. And so instead of having a linear author list, you say, here were the contributions to the paper. And this and this person made the data, took the data, led to this figure, blah, 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 blah. And so you kind of Break it down figure by figure.
2: Yeah, you know, there was a paper recently. It was co-authored by Oded Rehavi, and he proposed exactly that. And it was met with a lot of resistance, actually, on Twitter. There was a big discussion. And the community seemed to be really against that. And I can understand why. You know, if you think about a particular paper, someone's contribution, I think in like a day science, if I can introduce that term into this discussion, in a day science way, can be limited to a particular figure, but the conceptual part transcends it. In other words, when we're just thinking of particular experiments, we're just seeing the trees and forgetting about the forest, no?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a reasonable criticism, I think. And I've struggled with situations like this. Probably you have too in your lab where, you know, you have a project... It was started by one person, and they had the idea, but couldn't get it yeah. done for one reason or another. Another person graduate, yeah, they graduate, whatever. Another person took it across the finish line, and they did like eighty percent of the work. And so, right. who gets to be first author in that case? And did not an obvious right answer, right? I mean, it's very, yeah. I don't know, situational.
1: Yeah, I actually want to extend a bit Itai, on your distinction between day signs and night signs. Day signs actually gathering the data and drawing the figure. There, it's relatively easy to say who did what. But the creative part, like who had the ideas, sometimes it's even difficult to know how those ideas arose in retrospect because usually there's lots of discussions that happen before finally that idea emerges and you don't really remember what you talked about with whom and what first triggered you to think about something. I think it's just very difficult to place credit
0: for these things on people. Absolutely. There's a point by which it's not useful to try to continue to parse it, right? Well, in your lab, Steve, what is the role
2: of creativity? Is it a kind of thinking that, oh, ideas are cheap and it's the execution that really is the challenge? Or do you have a kind of deliberate process where you try to generate new ideas and it's actually a very big deal to get to that idea?
0: I think it's about Releasing the conscious control of the mind, letting the subconscious take over. And it's very hard to do that because that's not the way we're kind of wired in our day-to-day. Maybe that's why you call it day science. And, you know, I get some ideas in the shower. That's a classic place, right? Kind of trope or whatever. But, you know, for sure, I'm sitting there in the shower and I have another process, which I'm very fond of for generating ideas, which is to go into a sensory deprivation chamber for a day and then reverse Mm. my day and night cycles. For a week. And that really unleashes the subconscious. I mean, it's really amazing. The dislocation from that lets you sort of charge. Whoa, you.
1: whoa, whoa. whoa. Well, that's so, interesting. We want to yeah, hear more about that. That is sensory
2: deprivation and the reversal of day and night. Yeah. Can you expand on that?
0: Yeah, sure. So I had for a number of years a remote lab in Singapore. And I go visit oh. there <laughs> a year. And it was like a 20 hour flight. Nice. So you're in I for twenty hours, just absolutely deprived
2: of it <laughs> 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 happens naturally. I see
0: And you get to Singapore and then you know, day and night is reversed because it's virtually a twelve hour time change. And so quite literally, yeah. Yeah. You're like <laughs> lying awake in the middle of the night with your mind racing hundred miles an hour and lots of good ideas come through that. I mean, lots of good ideas. And so I think these days jet lag is like my single biggest <laughs> creative source. <laughs>
2: Whoa, that's really interesting. It's also ironic because the people there, they said, uh, oh, we'd love to have you come to Singapore. The environment here will give you great ideas. Really, it's just the matter of fact jet lag that comes along with it that is giving you the
0: ideas. It was an unexpected benefit. Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now, Steve, I want to go back to something you cited Francis Arnold as saying, which is that science is easy. People are hard. I definitely agree with the latter, but is science really easy?
0: Oh, you know, it depends what you're trying to do. And I think she's making a joke there. (laughs) It's all relative, I guess. It's all relative, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. Some science is easy. You know, you have the idea, you do the experiment, blah, blah, blah. Once you have the idea, the experiment becomes easy. Other times it's very hard because you're trying to do something that's technically difficult. You get results that are ambiguous. You get kind of lost in this. Like I would talk to my students and postdocs about having faith. Faith is super important to science because Mm. when you're charging in the unknown, it's not clear you're going to get to an answer, a publication, a PhD thesis. (laughs) That's very unnerving for the students and the postdocs. And you've got to have the faith that we're going to get there, even though you can't see the answer. And so I was always preaching about faith.
1: I think it's a good way to look at it. But what I'm wondering is, resilience also seems to be something that's really important if you want to do science, because you have the faith, but the faith might also be misplaced. So having faith, I think, also could be a dangerous thing if you have too much faith and you continue for too long.
0: Yes, that's true. So there is a particular kind of problem with faith where a student gets too much in love with the thing they're going to do and They're spending so much time designing and planning on the outcome. They don't actually do the experiment and get the results (laughs) along the way. They'll let them change course. And there's just faith that if I completely design this thing, I'll be able to go in make a measurement of you exactly what I want and I'm done. And it rarely works that way. And, you know, it's much more productive to doing experiments along the way and zeroing in. You get the proof of principle results. You learn is the signal of noise going to be where I need it to be and da-da-da is going to work the way I want. And so doing experiments along the way is very important. If you have faith that it's just going to work, that's a bad thing. Yeah, but right. More just faith that like we're gonna get to something interesting at the end of the day. Like, yeah. It may not be what we thought it was. It's gonna be different. But you know, I'll tell people I've never failed to get someone their PhD. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. If somebody came That's to my on a path and failed to get their PhD, we've always gotten out the other side. Just sometimes yeah. not where we initially thought we were gonna. Not by the route we thought we were gonna take. I like this concept,
2: Steve, of uh, having faith. I I think it could really help in general people, you know, they've done high school and there's a particular structure. There's all these classes and there's an exam and everything's clear cut. and, And undergrad is essentially the very same thing, right? There's like a track, you take these courses, you will get your degree. And then you enter your PhD. And for the first time, there's actually no plan. No one can tell you what is the set of experiments you need to do. get to your discovery it's just the first time in your life they have to confront a process and maybe it's a bit unique i think in basic science
0: and i can say that as an expert now being the parent of two teachers yeah (laughs) Yeah. i watched them and their friends in high school and i feel like we're doing them a disservice in how we structured all that because they feel like they can't be wrong Mm. they can't make a mistake and high school and probably undergrad too is so stressful for these kids because they feel like They cannot make a mistake. And there's no way to recover from making a mistake. We have to teach people it's okay to make mistakes. And I don't know if it takes until graduate school before they're learning that. It's harder to unlearn the other stuff. It's just, I feel like we need to teach that much, much earlier along. And society has now been geared up in such a way that that's not the way it's working.
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes, of course, uh, you can make mistakes that are regrettable. But more generally, I would say that the most interesting things and science come out of failures and out of mistakes, right? It's the unexpected things that really move us forward.
0: Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, there's also just the learning that happens. It's like there's Latin learning. You know, you can go through periods where it looks very unproductive, but you've actually learned a lot and that set the stage for a period of productivity. And like one example in my career was, you know, when I was a graduate student, I was in the theoretical physics department and I had met a professor from King's College London, Bob Simmons. And when I was in England, I was like, I want to do experiments. I want to learn something about lab science. Yeah. And so I would I called up Bob. I'd go into London once a week. And I had some ideas about what I wanted to do. And they were maybe not great ideas. But Bob, to his credit, just said, do whatever you want. Just don't blow a hole in the budget. <laughs> <laughs> and he basically let me go putter yeah. around. And nothing productive came out of that no paper, no discovery, but I learned a ton about molecular biology. And that really gave me the confidence then when I went to become a postdoc to become an experimentalist and take on things that theorists normally wouldn't do. And i had made a bunch of mistakes. I'd learned what not to do, and it helped me make the right choices later on. So that was like a super unproductive period by some measure, but it led to great productivity for me later in my career.
1: We would actually like to stop for a minute and thank our sponsors. Night Science is supported in part by Research Theory, a nonprofit working to improve creativity and culture in science. Find out more at researchtheory.org and by IMI, a nonprofit building a public media ecosystem for the 21st century. Learn more at theimi.co.
2: The Night Science podcast, believe it or not, has been going on for nearly three years now. And all this time, we've actually been funding it ourselves running it out of our garage, so to speak. And a big reason for us starting the podcast has been to try to improve the culture of science in terms of how we nurture our creative process.
1: Research theory and IMI, founded by Elaine and Stuart Severe, have a mission that overlaps very well with ours. And so we are thrilled to have their support. Thank you, and let's get
2: back to the conversation. <laughs> you know, Steve, it's really interesting... The situation that you find yourself in. You're a scientist of great accomplishments, and you know how science really works. You know the unpredictable nature of it. You know it from the inside out, right? Now you have a big job, as we've said, and you can kind of control how grants are being awarded. And so, you know, I think one thing that many scientists feel is that when we write a grant, we're forced to tell a story that we know is not going to pan out that way. In fact, it's like the best case scenario if the grant that we put together doesn't go that way, because that will mean that something more interesting will happen that was unpredictable.
0: And so I'm just wondering, do you see a way to change that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. And this is, for me, one of the reasons why I took the position, but also I think, why philanthropy can be so valuable in science, because we can take more risks. Mm. If you're running a government agency that's using taxpayer dollars, you're accountable for that in a different way. And the risk profile you can accept is very different than what you can do when you're responsible for helping disperse money made by an entrepreneur who took huge risks to get there and has a much different tolerance for risk. Mm -hmm. So just philanthropy by its very nature can take on more risk than government funding. And we've tried to build our mechanisms around that because We'll never replace the NIH. I mean, we're such a small amount of money relative to NIH. The NIH is irreplaceable and does so much great support of science. But we can help de-risk stuff so that it becomes ready for NIH funding. And I view that as a big part of what we do, getting into those risky areas, being nimble and helping de-risk them so the larger funders can come in and say, yeah, we'll want people doing this.
2: Yeah, in a sense, you could be funding the night science, whereas the NIH funds the day science.
0: Correct. And, like, when we were at the Biohub and getting that off the ground, we started a small grant program just among Stanford, UCSF, Berkeley, and it was all about funding the person. Yes. And, you know, there were no specific games. And people had to have an idea. But, you know, as soon as we gave them the grant, we said, we don't care if you do what you said you did. (laughs) Use this for your best idea and then come back and tell us how it went. So if you have people who already have great ideas… I think
1: that's a great way to give them the opportunity to explore them. But I think one of the problems that we have, and you hinted at that from the education of kids at high school and maybe also undergraduate, one of the problems we have is that we don't teach them to access their own creativity, to think creatively about scientific problems, to come up with new ideas. How do you think we should train scientists to be creative?
0: And you know, it's interesting, we've changed our admissions policies to account for this in bioengineering a little bit. So okay. UCSF, in their TETRAD program, which is like their graduate bioscience program, they did a retrospective study, which they published. It was super interesting. Mm-hmm. They had 20 years of data, and they looked at what made for the most successful PhD theses, and they evaluated that based on the thesis defense. So they asked the committee members, what were the best theses that defense committees you were on? And they kind of ranked everyone based on mm-hmm. that. Then they went back and looked at the admission records no correlation <laughs> well with grades no correlation i mean above a certain right. level right there's a threshold right, there. right. above a certain level no correlation of grades pretty much the only thing that correlated with success in phd thesis was did they have an undergraduate research experience ah. okay that was the still oh. most important predictor of graduate success and so we began incorporating that In our admissions process, did they perform undergraduate research and did the person who mentored them have something substantive to say about how they did there? And that, you know, it's been, I think, a positive change for us.
1: So you think the undergraduate research experience is important because it helps people to earlier make that transition Mm -hmm. so that they already have an understanding what it's about when they start their PhDs?
0: Yeah, I think that they learn that it's a different game and skill set. And you have to do a different set of things to be successful in research. And is not what it was to be successful in doing problem sets in the classroom. And you make the mistakes. You learn that it's not a linear path. And all those things that go into doing research that make it different. The earlier you learn about that, the more successful you'll be later on.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, Steve, we talked earlier about
2: problems in science. Are there other problems that you think czi could address
0: in the science community ah uh, you mean like the culture the of science, culture and things science that, would you say yeah oh that's such a good question i mean we're living in an age where people don't trust institutions don't trust science the political world the popular world is really divorced from mm. science and how it works and there's a lack of trust yes, and yeah. we as scientists i think have an obligation to be communicating what we do and the values and how our field works and the importance of it more than ever yeah. i think philanthropy has a role to do something there
1: So what do you think should scientists do? I mean, should they just seek opportunities to talk about their own research? Or what is that obligation that we have?
0: Part of it is seeking out those opportunities to share with the lay public what we do. I think another part of it is learning how to do that. I mean, there is a science to communication and communicating effectively and storytelling that we don't teach super well or super systematically. And Alan Alda has been running a great center for that over the years. And I've heard the talk he's given on that a couple of times and it's phenomenal as a trained actor, how you storytell, how you communicate. And boy, it's very different than what we tend to do as scientists. I think we can all lift our level a little bit and commit to doing that a little bit better.
2: I think when we talk about the culture of science, there's the positive aspects of the creative. There's also the negative aspects. When you were talking about having the faith as something that the students should kind of embrace, but you also mentioned that sometimes they take it maybe a little too far and they love their hypothesis perhaps a little too much.
0: Yes. I and mean, that's the role of the advisor who is one step removed, right? Mm-hmm. And provide that kind of less of a chance to fall in love with the hypothesis, provide that kind of independent view. Have you thought about this mm-hmm. or have you ruled this out? I also think in a healthy group, the rest of the group members provide that too. And that's kind of the role of group meetings when people are sharing their research and it's not yet fully formed and they can get that feedback from their fellow group members and get that skeptical questioning. You know, there's a great quote from ancient Greece from Sparta about we should have bloody practices so that our battles go smoothly. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Huh. But, yeah, I mean, people okay. have set up an environment where you can ask the very hard questions within the group and push and prod and questions so that when you're talking to the outside world about your research you feel like the hard questions have already been thrown at you and you're prepared.
1: You know the Spartan bloody practices that sounds like there could be a very aggressive mood in the group which I don't think probably is what you were talking about.
0: I mean absolutely it has to be respectful interaction and our interaction is not respectful the whole thing just falls apart because right. you lose the trust and the feeling of safety and it's absolutely crucial that you find a way to ask the hard questions in a way that is respectful and not threatening, but enables sort of discourse. That's like the whole art of how you create the kind of mood and the morale of the group where people feel safe enough that they can expose themselves and are willing to hear criticism and it's not aggressive and personal. so that's the whole job of management and of the advisors is to do that and to kind of get you to that point. I was wondering, how do
1: you structure the interactions between people in your group and between you and those people?
0: I've always tried to work on a wide variety of things in the group. So it gives people the elbow room and people can kind of have a sense of ownership over a project and they're not competing with each other. I've never set it up so that there was competition within the group. I feel that's like a destructive dynamic and, Other groups do it differently. And, you know, you're after climbing one big mountain, you set a bunch of people to the same goal by different means. And that's not been the way that I've wanted to approach things as a mentor. And so I've always tried to create a lot of elbow room and not have competition within the group. And that helps. People feel like they're in it together. They can go to their colleagues for help if they don't know something and they've got to help each other because nobody knows everything they need to do to get their project done and they have to count on each other. And yet they have the room to feel, okay, this is my thing and I don't need to worry about someone taking my idea. So that's like an important aspect of my mentoring philosophy.
1: So Steve, we've talked about a lot of things concerning the process of science and your process of science. Are there things that we have missed asking you.
0: Um oh we've
1: talked about so much. Yeah. Yes. You've been a great sport. Thank you, Steve. This has been great. <laughs> Thank you.
0: I would just I mean maybe I'd add that a certain number of the things I've done, particularly the clinically applied things, but also some of the basic research has come through my own lived experience and one shouldn't underestimate or derate that aspect of how one gets ideas in science. Mm-hmm. Like I got into the prenatal testing because of going through the amnio process mm-hmm. with my wife and born daughter and Got interest in preterm birth because of something we had there. Got interested in immunology because of our experience with allergies with one of our kids. Mm. And so, you know, these things you go through as a human being, you know, also affect the choice one makes as a scientist about the problems you get interested in, things you work on. And so there's a certain input to creativity mm. from the lived experience has been important for me and I'm sure for others as well. I mean, many people have had a family member with a disease. Cancer is a common one. You know, We've been through that as well. And those things influence creative choices in ways that I think is underestimated. And
1: I think it's really interesting that you have actually, at least for some of your projects, a clear view of why you became interested in them. Because in reality, we're all interested in different things. The things I find interesting are different from the things Itai finds interesting, and they're different from what you find interesting. But most of the time, we don't ask ourselves, why is it that I'm drawn to these types of questions?
2: Yes maybe we don't have to ask ourselves why we're drawn to it we just are and we do it (laughs) yeah of course of course but there's always something there right there's always
1: something there there's always something there well
2: steve this has been such a great discussion
0: it's been a ton of fun thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to chat about all this with you
1: no thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us it was really interesting